0: This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Colin Marshall, sitting down today with Sam Quinones, who recently reported for 10 years for the Los Angeles Times on drugs, gangs, and immigration. And he has three books out, one of which is brand new. They are Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream, True Tales from Another Mexico, and most recently, Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. You're probably the best person to ask this burning question I've had a long time. You know, you're a reporter. You're focused on true tales, on stories, and I was talking to a friend who runs a popular news site here in Los Angeles. I was saying, you know, you news people are always talking about what's the story. Is this the story? Is that the story? No, this is the real story. Story, story, story. What is a story in the context of reportage?
1: That's a pretty good question. Um, It's, I think, something that seems to have Public interest number one and is a kind of a, a tale my that's my view of it other will others will have a different view um, something that has a beginning middle and an end uh, is the is the way I would describe it mostly the, you you have other other definitions uh, and it depends on who's writing and, and what they're writing for but in my experience what I like to do is find stories that that tell us a lot about where we live or the times in which we live, have mostly a, a character or characters that you can follow, that you can relate to. Uh, you may hate them, you may love them, <laughs> but, but they're characters and, and they have human uh, foibles. I don't like writing about saints. I don't write, like writing about sinners, uh, people who are just pure thugs and have never uh, done more than that. The, How many the,
0: people are like that? How many pure saints, pure, pure sinners do you encounter? Very few, yeah. very few, and that's why. I mean, yeah. the problem is that
1: too often, in, in, uh, either in journalism or in Hollywood, we have this idea that, that uh, someone is one or the other, uh, that it is possible also to know the full motives of everybody, to know that someone in his heart is, say, a racist. Uh, I wouldn't have a no way of knowing that. Um, uh, I prefer stories. Uh, throughout my career, I preferred to write about people who are uh, a mix. Uh, uh, it's far more human, far more interesting too. I, th- I find saints and sinners to be rather dull and and perhaps sometimes not all that introspective at times. You know, um, I find I find that that, that you don't f- have stories uh, that that come out of those lives that are often very very interesting. I do, however, love to find people normal mortals like all of us who are um obsessed with something and particularly when those things are maybe um uh, fairly productive uh things you know i wrote once about uh The the guy who was the uh, kind of the instigator of all the Cambodian donut shops in Los Angeles, the Cambodian Donut King, I called him. wrote about a guy who was obsessed with bringing pure basketball from the Oaxacan mountains to the streets of Los Angeles, where he felt that the sport had been defiled by commercialism, and and he wanted to invest it with some purity that he had known when he was a when he was a kid. This kind of uh, obsession this kind of drive also uh, creates some some amazing stories but but I also never want uh, to write about someone who who is uh, I grow so attached to that I o- avoid his or her foibles or or fault uh, uh, you know drawbacks or or errors um, that's what makes that, those things make people interesting and if you if you if you focus if you focus on them only, then it becomes dull. But if you focus on them and, and, and give them their space within a story, then you have, you have something, I think, really powerful.
0: Do you discover the character first? Do you discover the beginning, the middle, or the end first? Where, where do you tend to begin from? What tends to be the first thing you find in a story or that leads you to a story?
1: Normally, I don't find the person first. Mm. Um, I find a question that I want answered like, what is that? Why is that? What's up with that? You know? Um, uh, on the basketball story out of Oaxaca, I spent two years noticing that all across Mexico, that Oaxacans, who are kind of like the, the country's itinerant workers, uh, were obsessed with basketball. They played basketball after farm work in Sinaloa or in Baja California or wherever. And, and I thought, why would the small, the, the country's smallest people Shortest people be so focused on basketball. And I spent two years trying to figure that out, looking for the proper character, until I found up here in Los Angeles a guy named Zeus Garcia, who was a busboy from Oaxaca, and in his day uh, was part of one of the greatest um, village basketball teams that Oaxaca ever produced. And I told his story, and then the story of, gee, isn't isn't, um, isn't it interesting that that uh, Oaxacans are all interested in are fascinated by basketball came way down in the story. It became his story first, but obviously it can work either w- either way. You can find a great personal story and then see the larger context for that story as you begin to interview the person. I do think though that that finding the proper person is 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 really important. Sometimes you got you got to look for the proper person, and sometimes it takes a few fits and starts so you, you 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 look you think this guy would work and then now how about this woman or well that doesn't really work either and then finally you come to someone who's who's this st- and that's when you i think usually you can feel it too right. you go oh wow that is a that's it that's great that's fantastic and when you you feel that it's a very uh satisfying thing
0: and all that time before the story has been the background of the story has been coming together in your head it's all been yes. cohering there's it's not like you Rejected one candidate as the protagonist of the story and lost everything because that it all it all goes in right every one of those people went in Somehow to this story, right? Oh
1: precisely you develop layers of knowledge and it may not be that you ever quote those other people But they have helped you come to the deeper understanding that you have maybe better more pointed questions uh, More informed questions. That's really that's happens frequently. I think so you get you get a lot of um It's never harms you to do more interviewing and more interviewing and more interviewing. I do quite a bit of interviewing I believe very strongly in immersion Journalism, which is kind of the way I did this book this latest book dreamland. It was you know, it's all about just Going into these areas finding out about the topic immersing yourself in the topic because that's when the better questions and the better insights Come as writers, I think we need to. We need to be very, very immersed. We don't need to know about it to begin with. Tom Wolfe was right. Don't write about what you know. Write about what you're going to find out about. Right. right, But you do have to know it deeply by the time you are writing
0: about it. You have to think of it as well. I'm, I'm making myself. How do you put it? I'm I'm, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm transforming, forming myself. I'm transforming myself, and then I can write the story. Right.
1: Precisely. And 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 you have to have that commitment. Uh, and, and to immersion, I think, uh, you, have to, you have to be willing to say, I want to be the expert. You know, I had a, uh, my first great job, uh, journalism job, was as a daily reporter for the Stockton Record yes. covering crime. And I did four years of that during the worst of the crack years. The uh, uh, Bloods and Cribs, Norteño Sobreño, I mean, the gangs, that's when I first learned about how gangs function. I realized very early on, it would be really important for me to become the expert. I wanted to know more about law enforcement and investigations and social crime and social issues than, um, than anybody else who wasn't in law enforcement. So I wanted to know about ballistics. I wanted to know about how um, Vicky's Town worked, the gang there. I wanted to know all that. And that is a, a, an, essential, an essential part. Of, of of writing nonfiction, you cannot. not it from it. every angle. Of course, yeah, and 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 proposing yourself as as yes, you may not be the expert now, but you're going to become right. almost an expert. Um,
0: and it's better for the reader because they're not an expert, so they need to have someone who was them.
1: Yes, and that's that's what I did with this story. Um, this book was a little different because um, it's a national story. You have a nas- nationwide scourge, you know, of of opiate. Uh, abuse. And, um, and it goes from Appalachia to the nicest suburbs of Seattle, uh, down to Van Nuys, down to, you know, all over the country, you've got this problem. And a lot of different people are involved. Plus, you have half the book is about this town in Mexico where everyone is, uh, this one town has, has, everyone has learned how to be a retail uh, uh, heroin trafficker selling heroin like pizza. Well, this is a story that does not have. A common thread. So, for the first time, really in my my career, on um, a large scale, I proposed myself as a character in the book because it was the only way to find thread through all of it. I was going to be the the surrogate for the reader. I was going to say, I know very little about this. Let me try to find out. And along the way, just like you don't know much, I didn't know much, but here's the story that I found as I began to kind of piece it all together. And that's how I can con- connect through myself, through my own experience, Jalisco, Nayarit with Charlotte, uh, North Carolina with Indianapolis, Indiana with Portland, Oregon. Uh, even those, those towns are widely disparate.
0: You had to be the threat, and you had to be, as, we, as you said before, you had to be motivated by a question, a curiosity. What was the question motivating Dreamlands? Dreamland.
1: It started out as, uh, why are so many people dying of black tar heroin overdoses in Huntington, West Virginia? That
0: was the very first question. And how did you find out about that?
1: Uh, I was part of a uh, crew of reporters at the New York, I'm sorry, at the LA Times, who uh, was covering the Mexican drug war. My job being in Los Angeles and speaking Spanish and so on, was to cover how drugs were trafficked, from the border across the United States. So look for stories, and, and it was a terrific idea that, that one editor had, and, and because no one had really ever done it. No one had, had covered that stuff except for in indictments. Well, along the way, I began Googling and just checking to see what I could come, come up with. I found this several stories in a row out of Huntington, West Virginia, people dying in, in, in overdose to black tar heroin. Now, this proposed a couple of questions uh, at the outset. First of all, I knew from having covered crime in Stockton and from having lived in Mexico that black tar heroin is only made in Mexico in this hemisphere and number two it's only it's been for years it's only been on the western half of the United States about far east as it gets is like Denver was Denver Texas um, it, but it was in Arizona it was in California Oregon places in Seattle places
0: like that it was not west of the uh, east of the Mississippi this is a total outlier from Completely. the stories from the stories you wrote before you knew this was weird my whole
1: experience was
0: and the DEA even
1: had a kind of a presentation about how black tar heroin doesn't go east of the Mississippi River. Well, here it was in sufficient and sustained quantities to kill people, a dozen people over 6 months in a town number one that, that also had I was unaware of any Mexicans living in in West Virginia. You know, and in fact there's less than 1% of that state is foreign born. So why, why would there be people dying? That was the question. Why would there be people dying of black tar heroin overdoses in a town of Huntington, West Virginia? So I made some phone calls. And the first phone call, I talk about this in the book, the first phone call was to the cops down there. They say, well, all our dope really comes from Columbus. Okay, fine. So I called DEA up in Columbus. And a variety of things happened. But basically, they tell me about this one group of Mexican traffickers who seemingly is endlessly replaceable, we arrest them all the time, and uh, they keep on getting arrested. So as I talk about in the book, I began to think this has to be from a small village. This is not a system that is based in a large town in Mexico. The reason I thought that was because of my experience in Mexico uh, uh, traveling among the small towns and villages of the country. And seeing how relationships work and family and extended family, especially work this way, I had come up with, with the, the strong belief theory, I would say. I believed it was documented by evidence that, that really we don't have a problem with drug cartels. Mexican drug cartels are part of the problem, but a a very significant chunk is really just smaller organizations, independent organizations, working kind of under the radar. Um, A lot of it is immigration-based, where people are using the immigrant communities as a place to blend in and that kind of thing. And so I began to think, this is from a small town. The guy told me that they were all from Tepec, Nayarit. Tepec is the capital of the state of Nayarit. I knew, when as soon as he said, he wasn't lying, but this is kind of what his knowledge was, uh, that, that, that that was wrong. I began to write to all the people that they had arrested and, and, uh, in federal prison, and I sent them some of my stories, and I wrote them a letter, hey, you know, and it was one guy out of all the people I wrote to, I think I wrote to 15 guys or something like that, um, called me and said, uh, yeah. Uh, I'll talk with you, and he told me, that he confirmed, and, and by this time I was just blown away, I could, could not believe that there was one village in which everybody was a drug trafficker, everybody was a, was a heroin retail, heroin trafficker, selling uh, 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 heroin up here, like pizza, with the same kind of operator you call the operator, and they deliver it to you, which is the system that the, the DEA guy was, was describing. And to me, that was just um, stunning. On the other hand, I also knew it to be not uh, hardly unprecedented. In Mexico, small villages ended, end up frequently with everybody doing the same job. And that's because education to poor Mexicans largely denied. The kind of education that you would need to be able to grow into somebody, into, into an architect, or into a doctor, or into somebody else, just is denied people from poor from poorer parts of Mexico. And, and because of that, people do follow in the professions of the people around them. So you learn your profession from your uncle or your brother-in-law or your friend down the street. It's family business. Absolutely. Except for it becomes a whole village. Yeah. Everybody does it. And I had written in my first book about a town where everybody makes popsicles and formed a very famous business model called La Michoacana Palateria la Michoacana. In, uh, popsicle shops, all across, and are there are there thousands of them all across Mexico. This is the, the same idea, except, except for it's selling an illegal product and it's selling it uh, in the United States. And so when this guy confirmed to me that, this, that my hunch was correct, that there was a small town and that everybody in the town was involved in it, that's really what set me off. But the first question was, why on earth are there people dying in Huntington, West Virginia a town with no Mexicans from a drug that's only made in Mexico?
0: You found that, you found out what the connection was, but then you had to find out, you know, a bunch of questions pop up right away after that. I would imagine, like, how did it get there in the first place? How did they get the town hooked? You know, how many questions just bloom after that?
1: Right, many. It's endless, of course. And, And why are there another big question that I really didn't get time to answer in the first set of stories that I did for the Los Angeles Times was why are there heroin addicts in West Virginia? Yes, that's a huge one. I had no clue. why on earth would there be people addicted. I mean, I thought of heroin as the the drug of choice for you know Harlem. Just like I grew up, what I knew about heroin, I knew from Stockton or from watching like The French Connection and right. Serpico and all those famous movies from the New York from New York in the nineteen seventies. Yes, yes. And so, what's it doing in West Virginia? Mm. And that, of course, led to the other huge questions of. of well, or the other huge issues of, well, we have a a widespread um, plague of over-prescribing of a prescription painkiller, legal narcotic painkillers like Vicodin and Percocet and, and, and OxyContin that have tenderized the terrain, made it a great day to be a heroin trafficker, but it has nothing to do, the real story is that none of this has anything to do with has much to do with mafias, street gangs. Most drug scourges start with street gangs, with with mafias, the Colombians, the Bloods, and the Crips, all that stuff. This starts with modern medicine. Modern medicine being almost wanton in its in its belief that they could prescribe without any 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 great risk um, these drugs to people, and that there would be no problem with it. And it was, that's what gave rise to the, the, the other part of my book, which is talk, talk, you cannot talk today about heroin without talking about prescription pills and that, that over prescribing. By the same token, you cannot talk about prescription pills anymore without talking about this. What it leads to is this wanton prescribing, this over prescribing, this prescribing pills for almost any affliction you might have uh, that deals with pain uh, leads to huge increases in heroin addiction and, and heroin overdose, and we've, we've seen that, you know.
0: There's essentially a crossover there in a way. You, you have a, a gateway drug in the form of a painkiller to heroin?
1: Correct, that's, that's exactly right. You have a gateway drug that's, that's legal and wide, widely prescribed, and that's the only way to, to uh, answer the question of how did heroin get to West Virginia, or Tennessee, or Alabama, or Idaho, or other parts of the country where it is now you can't you can't explain it any other way except for doctors prescribed it first and and what's more prevalent than doctors i mean and and pharmacies we have them on every street corner almost you know Mm -hmm. so all of that kind of works to then create this new demand for um for uh uh uh, heroin over over time it's not that everybody who's prescribed them gets addicted but although a lot of people who do, um, uh, but it's also that you have so much of the pill of the, of the, of the drug, it's like a, a huge rising sea level almost of, of pills. And they're available in every medicine cabinet in America. And so then you get lots of kids getting into it recreationally. You know, there's a big question of uh, does demand drive supply when talking about drug addiction and illegal drugs and so on? Or does, does supply drive demand? And in this case, supply drove demand. Uh, you don't have, uh, you cannot explain um, the demand for heroin other than the fact that the rising supply, the rising level sea C- level of drugs created a huge demand among people who then became addicted to it. You know,
0: drugs are one of those products where you get the feedback loop. If someone gets it, the more people get it, the more people want it, and they want more of it. You know. Plus, you're talking
1: about the most addictive drug, I believe, um, in uh, of all. Uh, it's far more addictive, I believe, than cocaine. Um, cigarettes, I think, are easier to quit. Um, some people might argue with that, but I really b- believe it's, it's a whole lot argue, more difficult to, to quit opiates. It's, it's, um, it's a, uh, uh, you know, a very damaging drug. It, it, it's, it, it, it what it does is it damages your life. Physically, you can come back from it. Uh, you can respond to it. Your body can recover from it. it, it but it, it it shreds your life uh, horribly, so because it's a it's a drug with great peaks and valleys. You got basically you need to take heroin about four times a day to make it through the day. And so that means your your entire day is taken up thinking about it and looking for it and wondering where you're going to hit next hits, and you don't dare go to sleep without a a, a hit ready for the morning. Uh, when you wake up that kind of thing and so yeah you 've got this whole kind of echo uh, chamber but you 've also got people getting addicted and this is crucial too I think who who are unprepared for what what awaits them and and whose parents are unprepared for it the, one of the problems with this with this uh, drug scourge I think is that there is um, it 's the quietest drug scourge we've ever had. Uh there is no public violence associated with it and public violence it's not is not the crack epidemic. To name one is it prohibition with right. the drive-by shootings in Chicago nor is it the Colombians are trying to introduce their cocaine into uh into um uh, uh southern Florida and and raising Miami's uh, murder rate to stratospheric highs, you know. This is this is something that all takes place very quietly and even the people who die from it their parents or their family make sure that nobody knows about it they make up some lie about well uh, you know he had a heart attack or something like that they don't talk about it. they don't talk about when he goes away for nine months to, to rehab they don't say where he went no one wants the stain because most of these this is a I would say 99% uh, uh, a white problem. Now, I've, I've met very, very few non-whites who were addicted to, to pills or, or heroin, uh, uh, in the new wave, um, uh, of the, of the, of the, of the epidemic. But, uh, and, and so th- those parents grew up in the 70s, most of them. They were teenagers in the 70s. And they, one thing we all learned was, Heroin is the most spongy slimy <laughs> yes. back alley drug you know, it 's just the worst thing. you never want to right. be needles. Yes. who wants to be around those things It's grotesque? <laughs> you know The AIDS epidemic did a lot for fear of needles as yes. well. All of this kind of led people to feel like this is horrible and nasty, and these are middle class families upper middle class families by and large whose, whose kids are get, getting addicted and who are dying, and they don 't want to talk about it they don 't want to go to the country club and say yeah. They found Johnny passed out on a McDonald's toilet the other day or, or my daughter's hooking down in the stroll or wherever. They, they, they just, so, so what happens is nobody learns from the mistakes of the first ones. And so it begins to replicate um, the mistake. You, you, you commit the same mistakes. You don't know what to look for. You're, just, you're blindsided by it. What I hope, part of what I hope this book will do is clarify some of these things for parents. Uh, it's not a how-to book. It's a book of sto- uh, stories about about addiction and what, why we have addiction in America to to these very uh, potent uh, uh, painkillers. But it is something if, if people read it. I want them to come away with a feeling like this is probably a good thing to do. This is probably not a good thing uh, 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 a, good, a good thing to do because it's. But the other thing that strikes me about it is that we've uh, the mostly for the most part the people who are being addicted to these drugs are people who are um benefited the most from the enormous uh, economic booms beginning that happened beginning in the, in the mid 1990s and you're talking about places like Charlotte, Indianapolis, Salt Lake, Portland, Albuquerque. These places did very very well uh in the last 15 20 years even uh, apart from the 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 great recession. And yet their kids who are been had more stuff bestowed on them than probably any generation uh, uh, of Americans or any generation ever um, are are turning for help or for uh, some reason to um, drugs, the main purpose of which is to numb pain. Uh, yes. now, what pain? You might ask.
0: That's yeah. That's the big question. Although you hear painkiller, you think, what are these? Yeah. Well, how much? What is all this pain? You know what I mean?
1: Right, exactly, and it gets into what I, what I find, found
0: fascinating about this story was it went,
1: therefore, far beyond a story about, about drugs into questions of America and who we are as a, what does it mean to be, can wealth by happiness, you know? <laughs> uh, can, uh, can you actually feel a um, fulfillment um, through stuff? Because we seem to have believed, as the time went on, over the last 20 years, that we could, that we could, a bigger house, a bigger SUV, a Hummer, whatever, um, you know, more stuff for Halloween, more stuff for Christmas, that was where happiness, uh, that's where happiness lies, and so therefore, let's do it, you know, let's, This more the merrier. Um, the, op- the morphine molecule, the molecule in all these opiates, is like the poster molecule for that that epic that era because it's it's uh it, you never get enough you are always demand it always demands that you take more and more and more it's it's a it's a severe and stern ta- slave master taskmaster. you know it's it, it's it, it you are never happy with this it all you the tolerance grows you got to have more you've got to have more it's very much like america uh was of the last 20 years in my view or from like 94 to to 2007 roughly where you just it, 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 bigger house it didn't matter that a bigger even bigger house was going to mm-hmm. make you happier yes. well that's exactly what what the what the opiates do to you once you're once you're enslaved by them you you just don't have any you you're just driven by the, for for more and and the the total fear of discomfort you are have a a mortal fear of going without the 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 the, 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 the the uh, withdrawals are going to be so intense and all. Mm. So it became, as I got into it, and, and this is why immersion really helps, I began to think a lot about what this meant. And and, uh, and I began to think, this is a story about America in the age of excess. Right. Right. This is what this story is about. And at the same time, we have these immigrants who are providing it for us. Well, immigrants, in my view, after living in Mexico many years, were kind of the, the people who the facilitators of our age of excess they were the ones who made us feel like princes by cleaning our houses and our pools and and cleaning our, our windows and mowing our lawns and building our houses and cleaning our restaurants and sweeping up, to, up, up after us at, after we left the restaurant and all this kind of thing it, it was we had this mass labor force working for very, very cheap that made us feel supremely wealthy like princes yes and here again, the Mexicans are providing this this, this service, you know, um, and it, but it gets all back to can we be happy with more? Will is more enough? Uh, will more ever be enough? You know, and my feeling is, as, as time went on, that the morphine molecule was the, posed these deep philosophical questions. You know, you were you were um, given um, uh, uh, well, the, 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 the molecule itself. Uh, uh, got you hooked, told you that everything narcotized you, mm-hmm. but was like this this supremely um, um, tempestuous lover. Like you yes. tried to leave it, it <laughs> yeah. would exact huge repercussions and huge uh, uh, um, uh, uh, pain, really, uh, from you. And uh, and it was it would be very difficult for you. To leave it, you know, and it was one of these things that struck me as I got within this tiny little molecule. You've got the potential for heaven, and the potential for hell. No molecule has done more to help humankind. I mean, we we do we do uh, massive surgeries, cut people wide open and save their lives because of this molecule at the same time and uh, it has stunted so many lives through through addiction it's all in this one uh, unseen molecule that that this happens it's
0: like and to a be, true double edged sword
1: oh completely and 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 it and it also is uh you know it leaves you with this these major i believe these major philosophical questions i'm not a much of a philosophical guy i don't spend a lot of time pondering these but as it, as time went on as i got into this
0: story i couldn't help not to it's, you The questions, as we talk about the questions these stories lead you to, it leads you to the biggest ones you can ask. And I, I, I want to point out one other thing that's, it's it's a quality of America revealed in this book. Like you say, it's, it's a story, the story of painkiller addiction. It, it takes place in a lot of what's been written about it so far in areas like you say, West Virginia or Alabama or areas that readers in major american cities might often forget about or not know about. I mean there's it's it starts in places yeah. where there's a low places that there's a low awareness of a disconnection to, right? Correct. And that's they were the canaries in the coal
1: mine. Had people paid attention to Portsmouth, Ohio, the town I talk about and mostly in the book, or or towns in eastern Kentucky, which were towns forgotten by even people in those states, uh, let alone the rest of the country. Uh, we might well have avoided a lot of this. This was happening back in the late 90s. What's happening today was happening there in the late 90s. No one gave a damn. No, those places were abandoned politically as well as you know, pop- their population had largely left too. They were viewed as kind of contributing to their own demise anyway. They had this kind of like dysfunctional cultures. They were a lot of folks were on um, SSI. Uh, it was a welfare culture. Uh, there was all these reasons uh, why we shouldn't pay any attention to these areas? Truth is, had we, uh, we might have avoided some of this. This was this was going on. They were the canary and the They were the canaries in the coal mine by, by far, and a lot of it starts there. It then spreads, of course, to much more uh, privileged uh, parts of America. In fact, that's mainly where it's taken place. Since the Appalachian, uh, you know, the, the area uh, uh, where it first where it first starts, it's spread to much better. Uh, economically uh, prosperous uh, areas now um, the ground floor and all there's ground zero in all this is the area if you drew a large uh, kind of oval around uh, southern Ohio starting with Columbus into West Virginia down into Eastern Kentucky to me that's ground zero that's that's where it starts but there is uh, you probably Apart from maybe some parts of the Texas border, it's hard to find any place less, less attended to right. uh, by the rest of the country than that area right there. And that's that's one of the reasons it it spreads.
0: Right. I mean, it's, it illustrates a way in which, how to put it, America, it isn't really a unit. Is it's not really unified in most ways. It's still it's still uh, disconnected parts.
1: Well, I think I think nowadays it's become uh, a very. Um, Popular to kind of view areas that are very very poor as uh, creating their own demise, and in some cases that's true. I'm not saying that that's always incorrect, but it makes it very easy to to dismiss those 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 places. And uh, one another places, as, as I said, along the Texas-Mexico border, uh, down by the. Um, Gulf of Mexico. Those are extremely poor areas, and people don't really pay much attention to them all. If there weren't illegal immigration going through there, uh, no one would pay ever any attention to them. Um, but but the, the Appalachian regions are certainly right up there and places where Americans barely think of. And also the Rust Belt. Uh, part, of, part of Appalachia is actually the Rust Belt. They had a lot of jobs down there, and they all left um, in uh, coal mines, but also in uh, uh, heavy industry and that left them all really uh uh vulnerable um the 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 title of the book comes from uh this magnificent um pool that f- it was the s- town square essentially it was enormous swimming pool largest football field in the town of portsmouth ohio which is where i, s- I, s- I place a lot of the book um, this town this pool served as the babysitter, the social center, uh, the dating, uh, uh, venue for, for everything. Yeah. People grew up at dreamland. And so it became kind of also a, a, a metaphor for America. America was a dreamland where people could, could go and raise their kids in public and together. And people have the most marvelous memories of that pool. You know, the, 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 the the suntan oil and the French fries <laughs> yes. and kissing—maybe your first kiss. Some people lost their virginity at this pool. You know, um, it, it was this marvelous thing, sustained by the community, sustained by the great union jobs that they had, and all of that. Then, with the jobs, departure of the jobs, then the people in the 1980s. Um, Leads eventually to the catastrophe, which was the closing of Dreamland in, in, in 1993. And once that happens, the town has no place to come together to, and it, it then falls prey, once it's now fragmented, atomized, kind of, it falls prey to the most individualistic, selfish, um, uh, uh pernicious, uh, drug of all, which are, which are, which are opiates. And, and the town becomes very, uh, turned in on itself. No one goes outside. The only place to see people um, uh, is Walmart because Walmart has taken the place of Main Street. Main Street is no longer now that the people aren't there. Well, where do you see people ever? You say hello to them briefly at Walmart. Um, and, and all of this is part of... I, I, I found this story fascinating, just utterly um, uh, mesmerizing uh, because it seemed like it starts with the decline of the town leading to the, the, the decline of this pool that sustained life. I mean, people would literally, when they were three, be swimming in the shallow end, by the time, watched over by their mom and dad. By the time they're in middle school, they're swimming in the middle of the pool. High school, they're in, in, in early adulthood, they're down at the deep end. And then they have kids and they come right back to the shallow end and they raise their kids in the shallow end. This is like the cycle of life in Portsmouth, Ohio. is was a beautiful, uh, sustained thing that went on for decades for 50 60 years and then all fell apart and in its place
0: came Walmart and then it's almost too a good years. a metaphor it's almost too good a metaphor for a lot of problems in America right now
1: oh absolutely it, it hit me uh, uh, in an amazing way I mean uh, I, I kept on hearing about this pool I, I visited Portsmouth I think five or six times it hit me the first The second visit, I heard about this pool and didn't think much of it. And then I began to slowly, it slowly became clear to me how important this town was and how important it was to maintaining the social cohesion. And once you don't have that social cohesion sustained by jobs, again, population, which go with the jobs, and then also a kind of a community feel to go with all of that, the pool was the manifestation of that. Once that falls apart, then your whole town is kind of fragmented to the point where Everyone's in their house shooting up, and that town—an unbelievable number of people got addicted in that town. It was a whole generation, almost literally a whole generation, grew who addicted first to pills and then later to uh, to heroin. Um, but it was it was a it was a stunning uh, story, and that's and as time went on. I began to realize its importance as a metaphor, you know, and also the dreamland. What is a dreamland if not something that the addict is looking for, yes, too? This kind of doped up, euphoric, uh, noddingness
0: where you just, like, oh, you That's know. That's what readers will think when they first see the title, I think. They'll think of that state, but then they'll realize it's much more.
1: It, it, I hope they'll realize that this is what America was in a very basic sense a kind of a thing sustaining community that, uh, even though people were, were, working class not not middle class they felt middle class by all the the things that they could do for free and, and together and we have systematically stripped that of many most of the country i would say and because of that you've got this most narcissistic most uh, individual individualistic drug permeating all parts of of the country because you don't you have people it happens in wealthy areas too you know you have people who are give their kids cars, bedrooms cell phones everything and these are the main places where heroin addiction takes place right. you get the you get the cell phone to call the dope dealer you go in the car to get the dope <laughs> you come back you shoot up in your room and you hide your dope there when it's when you're not using it right. uh, that's how junkies tell me that's how it all works. Because so many kids have have all those things now, they're the kind of the holy trinity of American
0: prosperity that your kid can have a cell phone, a car, and in his own sure. in his
1: own bedroom, and there
0: they're going to die. Right, exactly. They have all the supplies they need, all the settings they need, all the venues they need. I wonder. We, we say you did a decade at the Los Angeles Times. What's Los Angeles like as a place to observe? From which to observe the observe the whole of America.
1: Uh, that's a good question. I, I I I think Los Angeles now is very different than when I was growing up. I grew up in the Southern California, and I I um, uh when I was growing up, L.A. was largely white, black, and with a little Mexican flavor to it. Not much. Um, in the eighties, changed all that, right? In the eighties, Armenians, Lebanese. <laughs> Um, Salvadorans, Koreans. Cambodians, Koreans, more and more Mexicans, because of the lost decade of economic growth in uh, in Mexico. So it became a place that it was not; it had never been a cosmopolitan world city. But in the 1980s, because of all the people who came, the Iranians came to, uh, Russians then at the, with the fall of Berlin Wall and all, all of those folks come to L.A. and they don't melt; right. they do not melt. It takes a long time for someone to melt it's more like little bubbles I like to think of them as little bubbles but they're so extensive now that you can have vast parts of the economy in which no native-born American factors in you know the the business owner the worker the customer uh, you know everybody is from another country and that is why Los Angeles is is a fascinating place to watch because it's far ahead of of the other parts of the country in this in this in this way. It's also got a, a far larger uh, f- uh, feeling of um, of Mexico and yes. Latin America and Asia than I think a lots of the other country parts of the country. And that is re- those are two very important uh, groups for the future of this for the century and for and for the for the country. And so. Uh, I wanted to come back here, it's first of all where I grew up, but also I'd spent so many years in Mexico, I wanted to keep writing about immigration, I wanted to keep writing about Mexico, the neighborhoods and, and, and other things like that, so that, I, I mean, it would be just kind of a continuity uh, question, I just wanted to not have a, a dramatic break and start covering something radically different, right. I felt that these topics were enormously important for the, for the, for the country, and uh, this was my home, but it was also a wonderful place to,
0: to see all that take place. You can't understand Los Angeles unless you understand Mexico. Is that true? Would you agree with that?
1: I'm not sure if that's precisely true, but certainly uh, there's huge parts of this country, of uh, this town and region that you where it's indispensable to understand what's going on in Mexico, how Mexico factors in. Um, I think, for example, and I talk about this in in, in the book, um, that one of the most important institutions in American life today is the Mexican rancho, the little village that started really maybe a hundred years ago as a ranch for one family, but through intermarriage and some, some in-migration a little bit, maybe kids just being born. It becomes something like a small village with maybe anywhere from eight to a hundred houses, depending on the rancho. But the rancho is a very specific institution in Mexico because it is unlike the other kind of agricultural institution the ejido which is a communal farm which depended on created by the government as a as an entity and then uh, completely you know supported by the government this is a very independent the rancho is very independent it gets no special loans no political favors it's made up of people who are kind of on the outskirts of culture and society and 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 economics in Mexico and they have a very they have very distinct attitudes that come out of there some of the greatest cultural expressions of mexico mariachi all the food a lot of the music comes out of the rancho the things we think of when we Precisely, think of mexico. yeah they didn't come out of the ejido that's for sure the ejido is an agricultural entity that really has not produced much literally and figuratively um but uh it also uh has a lot of other attitudes uh, particularly when lots of rancheros live together there's attitudes regarding poverty you know poverty debt. Uh, the education of women that are, are entirely backward, in my view, uh, and very and hinder people from actually um, moving moving ahead. So um, the uh, the rancho is something that you absolutely need to understand if you want to understand, for example, why we've had so few Mexican poli- Mexican or Mexican American politicians elected to a public office here in in this in this region, or why it took so long. Because rancheros have this distinct deep-held view that getting involved in politics is a uh, disastrous course. Do not get involved in politics, unlike all the other immigrant groups like the Irish and the Italians who saw politics as as rightly the way to economic progress for their group. You all vote together as a bloc. Rancheros don't do anything as a black They're the most uh, wild, bucking bronco kind of a, a, of a culture. It's really, really amazing. Uh, I love it, um, but I also see that it's a it's a problem. But you cannot understand, for example, the southeast cities, South Gate, Huntington Park, Bell, Bell Gardens, Maywood, Downey, all those towns out there, Compton, without understanding the rancho. The rancho was w- what populated those areas. Uh, there's in. A tremendous work ethic in those areas, uh, as there is from the rancho. But there's also tremendous uh, envy and jealousy, backbiting. NVIDIA is a destructive, destructive force. You'd be amazed how much is destroyed by people backbiting and, and that kind of thing. It's really nasty. Um, all of this is just part of the, the mosaic. You know, I, I really love it. But I do think you can, you really have to understand the rancho. In order to understand Los Angeles, and in fact to understand many parts of, Los, of, the, of the United States now,
0: on the most basic level, I found just even geographically, you look at the map of the Rancho's and you see modern Los Angeles and reflected in how they were carved up. You know, it's, yeah. you can still see the echo of it. It's, it's, it's that, and it's. I mean, I want to get a sense as well of what you think Americans don 't understand about Mexico that they would sort of benefit the most by understanding you know when when they Americans think about Mexico, I think now a lot of them think in narcotraficos and right, all these problems right. beheadings uh, right. as a super violent place where just they think of Mexico as a total disaster often what What, what helps nuance that mental image
1: uh, it 's a, it's a good question i mean I, th- I think the the, uh, the fact that Mexicans are now um, our working class helps to leverage that, I think, that, that, that we are, we most of what we do is made possible by Mexicans today. Uh, we have a distinct uh, division of labor in this country and have had for a while now, uh, you know, our, our meat, our, our pools, our, our, our landscaping, so much depends. On hard work by people from those countries and it's a complicated thing and I don't I don't like stories that are one way and this one is definitely not this has numerous facets and factors in it Um, I I think that that the other half of the story though is how Mexicans have sustained our wealth Uh, and they do that um, by working hard and and becoming I think better off certainly better off than they were in the rancho um, themselves, uh, and, and that's that's generally a good thing, but it's it's so that is the other side of of of, uh, of Mexico. The big question now is, I think, as Mexico slowly and it's slowly, but it is showing signs of becoming less of a country that people feel they have to leave. What happens here? We may have to learn how to do things that we've forgotten how to do. Uh, like clean our own pools, you know, nice. that kind of thing. Uh, uh, and when that happens, I think that other side of Mexico will be more keenly uh, appreciated.
0: Having lived in both Los Angeles and Mexico City, two of, to me, the most fascinating cities going in the world, I mean, what is there any... Is there any way to compare them? I mean, other than the presence of Mexican culture in both, I feel like there are a lot of resonances when I go between them. I'm not sure exactly what they are, but it's something I'm sure you've thought about more than I have. What is in common or how, how, to, how to put them next to each other, Los Angeles and Mexico City? Yeah,
1: I, I think in some ways they are both kind of dynamic cities where there's a lot of change. Now and that's that's a good thing uh i think and however, Mexico City also suffers i believe uh, from the fact that it is the central location of Mexico, and that has made it far too complacent too often. Its businesses are far too complacent they are completely insulated from the demands competitive demands of the world I
0: mean, just the, the telecom alone
1: you know uh, uh, every business yeah. I think you can you know the you can point to the particularly if it's a family-owned business the dad makes the decisions the sons are there right. and um, nobody has any ideas that don't go through these guys you know you have a so I find that on the outskirts of Mexico City as on the outskirts of Mexico, is where you find the most dynamic people in the rancho the that's why my first book uh, true tales from another mexico was based really on people who are on the out, outside of mexico and they were not they were not part of power that centralizing thing that's very suffocating in mexico city you can find a lot of that too even though the town is itself a very decentralizing impulse of mexico is just right there in, in mexico city um you can find on the outskirts both figuratively and literally Uh, people who are doing their own thing and being very creative about it. Um, It's hard for me to imagine, though, that if they did not have the resources that the center sucks from the rest of the country, if it would be as dynamic a town as it actually is right now. That's That's a big thing. Nor would it be as large a town as it is right now. It might be quite a bit smaller, in fact. Um, but, I mean, uh, people in Mexico will tell you that the, that the dynamism of Mexico City is due to the fact that most of their tax money goes there. You know, <laughs> right,
0: that right. helps quite a bit. That keeps you know? the capital in movimiento. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right.
1: And, and that's, that's, that's part of the issue. Now, uh, my f- I use Mexico City as a metaphor in my second book for what people were fleeing. In, in Mexican culture, which is that centralizing impulse the 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 lawyer the licenciado who sits there and not does any doesn 't do anything and gets his shoes shined and 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 people around him are the ones who are actually making the country work you know right. that licenciado is you know his his throne is in mexico city right. um, still and all the you know the, the town has so many people who 've left and come looking for another for another world for another uh, to reinvent themselves, that they have this great energy. One, one other place that that I lately have been spending a lot of time that I love, that I've found that is uh, in the city of Tijuana. Tijuana is a, a tremendous town, um, very interesting, not terribly pretty, right. and smelly. It does smell, right. and it, it's all the traffic is insane. Figuring out the traffic is crazy down there, mm-hmm. and the the road patterns and so on. But, but man, it's got so many people who've come from all over. Mexico. There's a, I don't think there's any state that doesn't have a large population in Tijuana. Um, they've all landed there, and they've taken those big risks. And so they bring that attitude. You know, it's a kind of a self-selecting population of people who want to risk something. And, and it's also very far away from the center. And so you get that as well. You get that, that kind of independence of spirit and mind. Uh, in, in, in Tijuana and that's that's another town that I think is, is really worth watching It's it's got so many interesting things and again you have to get beyond the fact that it it looks kind of broken down and crumpled and strange a sort of Sin
0: City reputation of it as well
1: yeah that's pretty much dead it yeah. doesn't it's no longer I mean it exists to just a small degree now it's far more interesting in terms of a place for art cu- cuisine yeah. uh, film stuff that, that, that also is big there um, just a lot of new people trying new things, right. you know, and watching also helped enormously by the proximity of the United States. You've got yeah. the economy of the U.S., San Diego up to L.A., but you've also got uh, just the, the different ways of seeing how things are done, right. you know, it's, it helps a lot.
0: It's that gateway, that gateway phenomenon. When a city is a gateway, you get you get automatic. It's almost automatically interesting, right?
1: I, I believe so, yeah. I mean, it's very, be pretty hard to find a city like that that wasn't just fascinating. And I, I, what I love about Tijuana is that it's breaking down those, those controls. You know, not so long ago, that town almost didn't exist. It was a blank slate. There was no big elites there deciding, okay, this is how things are going to work and these are how we're going to, this is how we're going to control. Uh, opportunity for others, as happens all the time in many other parts of interior of Mexico. Right. This is a town where where those elites formed later, but by the time they formed, everyone else was kind of on par with them, you know. And so there wasn't this ability to control economic and political life the way the way it, it is in other parts of the country. And, and right. that, so it left the town without, you know, its newness. Left the town without any any um, any beautiful colonial architecture, of course. Uh, And so it's an ugly town, perhaps, but it's also beautiful because a a person can come and grow into the middle class uh, and progress economically far more easily than he can in another part of the country.
0: So why did you become interested in Mexico in the first place? How did it become uh, a subject for you?
1: I was a crime reporter in Stockton, in San Joaquin County. uh, And I realized this was in the late 80s and early 90s as people were discussing NAFTA. And I saw just how many Mexicans were in California at that point. I spoke i would say very halting Spanish at the time. I began to take classes improve my spanish um, but I felt that that I needed to under to understand california uh, I needed to either learn Chinese or learn Spanish. And I, that was a little bit more accessible.
0: You had a head start in Spanish. Exactly right. I spoke
1: Italian and French before that, so mm-hmm. it's not that hard a language to learn if you know those two. But but basically, I felt that there was a, um, a, a new thing happening that I needed to be prepared for as a reporter if I wanted to understand the, the state. So I began to study Spanish. I went down to Mexico a couple of times. I left the paper, went up to Seattle to work there. That really didn't work out so well. I, t- I got a, a, a fellowship to go study Spanish in Mexico City. Actually, in Cuernavaca, really. And and uh, as I was down there, that was in 94. And when the, the this country went through huge tumult, five or six major scandals. You had, the, the, Of course, you had the Zapatistas first, then you had the murder of Colosio, Luis Donaldo Colosio, the PRI, the ruling party's presidential candidate. You had a, a more murders within the, within the party. Uh, then you had the peso devaluation. I went down there in that, for that year and stayed. They offered me a job at a, at a magazine. I was studying Spanish. They offered me a job at a magazine uh, that was published in English at that point. Uh, by one of the local newspapers in Mexico City. And I went home to Seattle, sold all my stuff, took a little bit of my personal belongings down to my dad's house, and for the next 10 years uh, lived in, in Mexico. For one year I was a reporter at at, a ma- at the magazine. Then with the pace of devaluation in 1994, end of 94, I, uh I became a freelance writer. And that was really when it became great. Because freelancing is, I believe, the best way to write about Mexico because... It allows you the time, the immersion that you need to dig into a country. You don't sit around and, and uh, order to go from this story to that story to the next story and boom, like that's like so many correspondents one of the five you've got to do that day. Exactly, or maybe you, you're sent out to a town you don't know, you've got three days. Well, you get there, you spend one day, kind of day and a half learning it, then the third day you've got to leave. You know, there's, there's not much depth you can find. And what I found as a reporter, as a freelancer, was that you could... I could go to a town and then come leave it and go back and meet the same people and ask them deeper questions and write about it along the way. So I'd come to an idea of this is how this story could work. And then, okay, if that's the story, then what are the other questions I need to, to ask? I, I live, for example, for eight weeks with a, um, off and on with, a, 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 a crew of, uh, drag queens in, uh, Masatlan. And that became a, a very deep experience for me. I, I, it started out as kind of this question. Again, it starts with a question. Why are there so... In this country of macho men, <laughs> right? Why are there so many men dressed as women? Yes. You know? Well, it's because it's a macho country. Because you don't have this natural expression of homosexuality like you have in, a, in other places. You have to be dressed as a woman. And that's why I believe that a lot of the, the, the guys that I ran into were not really transgender. Yeah. Or they, they were guys who simply were forced... If they wanted to have boyfriends, they had to dress like a woman. And that, that's it, you know. Yes. But, but so it was those kinds of experiences. I would go back, oh, and come back then that third time. Oh, Samuel, how you doing? This kind of thing. Right. And it became a place where, where I could really dig deep. Yeah, yeah. And Mexico, as of, I believe most foreign countries are like this, but Mexico really reveals itself very slowly. There's like various peels of the onion, onion you know, layers of the onion you got to peel back.
0: Time has to be an element. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And that's why freelancing to me uh, gave me the freedom to do that, which was far, far more important than the money. Even though I learned, earned far less than my, 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 my correspondent colleagues, I never really wanted their jobs because I felt that it was just too, the time was not there and you just didn't have the time to spend and you you, you lean learn deeply and, and and that's what's really really important if you're going to tell stories as opposed to getting back to your first question as opposed to just a news article you want to tell stories that's you have to have
0: that immersion right it's a story so in a, in a way a story story means immersion story requires immersion immersion and story you can't separate them not if you want to make it good, a good one. Not if you want to make a
1: good, a good one. <laughs> a good no, one. I mean, if you want to really tell a great story, you need that. You need to know the character uh, or characters. Right. And and you need to know the place. And you need to feel the place. And you need to have asked a million questions. And and it could even come down to the point where some of these questions, the answer changes your, your decision of how one word, about one word, you know. Uh, I'll put this word instead of that word. Because I had that conversation three months ago, and I know that this word actually is more reflective of what the person meant, you know, or how the th- how things are. You get into that level. That's beautiful. That's when you, it's like a, a beautiful kind of state of enlightenment, I find. I just love being that immersed in something so that you can feel it deeply. Always, always requiring, of course, completely open mind. You have n- cannot bring your political... Views and you know, whatever other conclusions you've come to make about the world. Pre-made. <laughs> yes. You have to be willing to have them jostled. Right. They cannot be set in stone. And then you have to ha- be willing to have them jostled again. Mm-hmm. And maybe a third or fourth, fifth time. You know, it's, it's, That's really what's important. You cannot do this job. It's a very healthy thing, I think. But you cannot do this job if you have a political axe to grind. I really believe it. You just have to be open. And wide open, and always, always more educated, and always more, more informed, but always ready to, to have what you think you know uh, upset.
0: And listeners, you can immerse yourself in this deep and troubling story in Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic, the latest book by my guest today, Sam Quinones, the reporter, the teller of tales of drugs and gangs and immigration. Of Los Angeles, of Mexico, and more to come, I'm sure. Sam, thanks so much. Colin, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with the LARB at com or me at colinmarshall.org. Thanks.